everyone to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. All right. Welcome everybody to the Disco Posse podcast. We are back again. And this is a, a, a an exciting opportunity. We're going to meet somebody who's who's new to the to to this podcast. Uh, somebody who, if you've if you're using a laptop, you've probably thought about the challenge that has been solved by uh, by this gentleman. Uh, I'm very very happy today to to welcome James Olander to the uh, to the podcast. We're going to talk about. A few things, uh, and he is the creator and designer of the Roost Stand, uh, among many other things that have that have happened in his life and career. Just got back from a wicked cool, uh, you know, outback skiing excursion. So we'll we'll explore a bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about starting up your own design, uh, going to a product. Uh, we're talking about single screen productivity, which is something that I think everybody's going to be super interested in with that. Uh, James, welcome to the podcast. If you want to introduce yourself, tell us where we can find you online, and then we're going to get started. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Uh, cool to be on. Uh, I created this laptop stand called the Roost, or Roost Stand. Uh, we haven't really, but I think we're still in like Facebook or the Facebook stage on naming, but uh, <laughs> Like the Roost laptop stand, and uh, it's the roost.stand.com. Uh, very soon it'll just be roost.com, but uh, a Google search of Roost laptop stand, and you'll find us. And we we really just sell direct. Uh, we're not in major retail or distribution. Uh, where there's there's no layer between us and the customers, so we get lots of feedback, and uh, still very very small, but um, like hyper product focused company and. Uh, going six years, seven years now, and uh, we spend all of our time working on uh, new, fun versions and ideas of products. So um, that's that's kind of the arc, and it and it got its start as a Kickstarter um, back in 2013. So. How time flies, eh? I I, I imagine it feels yeah. like both forever and yesterday to you from from when you you know when you launched, but. Maybe if you could walk us through that, I think that's one of the most cool parts of this of the story here is, you know, you had an idea. And yeah, go from, I think I've got an idea and, you know, executing and, and then we'll talk about the actual Kickstarter, which is one of the top, you know, uh, Kickstarter campaigns that, that we've actually seen in the history of the platform. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, yeah, that is an interesting uh, thing, and I, my, I'm an engineer by trade, so uh, the like, the ideas there, and then I think a somewhat sober assessment of like all the little moving pieces that have to go into it. I had, I mean, at least I had a spreadsheet which um, with with prices and you know what is there a break even point and when is you know, when does this become any you know something besides a hobby. Um, I mean, I was, I, I think like a rule of thumb is, is I don't know anyone that's actually had a like profit from a Kickstarter until maybe their, their third Kickstarter. Uh, they're, they're usually like large money losing endeavors, um, which I don't think that was like ever really uh, shared too much back in the day. Um, I mean, a lot of that was just first time mistakes and, being being like very bad at pricing uh for a proper markup and unexpected costs um but yeah the uh, i've only had two kickstarters so uh so i haven't had haven't had a profitable one yet and um uh, but you know i think like how the platform is used nowadays is is a lot more intelligently by uh, a lot more uh, strategically i guess as a uh list not list building but as a uh, early adopter and uh, you know, fans of the of the brand and of the product and, and i think it's still very um, 
a good way to do that. Uh, but it is a different world than it was in 2012. Uh, and you know how how I got into that. Uh, I, I I was in the right place at the right time, where I was at a place called Tech Shop. It's a members uh, monthly membership machine shop, and it was in the Bay Area. I was living in Silicon Valley at the time, and there would literally be two or three people in the same workshop as myself that had 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 like successful Kickstarters. And so you just lean over and ask and like, Oh my gosh, how does this work? And how does that, how do you do this? And, um, after you see enough people around you doing, you're like, okay, I think I've got a, uh, most of this stuff researched a bit and, um, I'll, um, let, let's give it a crack. So that was the, so uh, was it basically like, it's like an incubator for like mechanical, like physical stuff. Is that, that the idea right there? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, they uh, they they went bankrupt uh, like a year and a half ago. Um, but the the tech shop is a it was a I don't think they franchise, but they're um, uh, there's a big warehouse with a bunch of machines machines in them, so uh, mechanical stuff, so like a CNC machine, laser cutters, um, 3D printers, lots of 3D printers, um, also like a huge electronics workshop, uh, so you could solder, you could build art like Arduino's. Uh, they had all sorts of classes where they, you could learn how to use this stuff. Um, so just like awesome hacker space. And I think the membership was like a hundred bucks a month. Um, but like they had no equity in, in any ideas or whatnot. It was purely like a hangout space. And, and a lot of people would like spend most of their days hanging out there. It's, it's pretty cool community. Um, but yeah, they, they went out of business like a year and a half ago. So they had maybe seven or eight locations, I think, around the U.S. And I, I think they, they grew and didn't couldn't make it scale. So. Alas, like anybody's first Kickstarter, they found out the hard way about funding and pricing. That's uh, that's tough. That's actually, it's such an interesting yeah. base and an idea, but like I tell you, it's the humbling thing of, you know, even when you see good revenues or, or good membership or a strong community wrapped around it, it's just, life is tough and business is tough. It's a different yeah. thing. You know, even the most successful product may not be the best successful business wrapped around it it's an interesting challenge it is yeah it was a a pretty sobering thing when uh when that happened because the news came out of nowhere and i mean it's a a pretty large organization i mean they had probably tens of thousands of members i would think and it's known really wide um the founder he had been interviewed by obama when he came out to the bay area for like tech you know tech startup and maker spaces and um yeah, so I was going to say there's a huge hole in the marketplace that someone should fill, but maybe there isn't a hole, right? Like, it's, there's, there is no profitable way to, to make that, that concept work, which I don't know how you'd tackle it better than those guys. So, so when you, you managed to, to have a space like this, and, and so let's talk about the, the idea. When did you know that I've got a thing, that I, I've got a problem yeah. I think I can solve? <laughs> Right. Um, so the, uh, the, the thing was made clear to me by a uh, physical hand therapist that I was seeing. I, um, I, I'd been an engineer at a big aerospace company, uh, CAD jockey, like to call ourselves, and spent years just moving a mouse and driving a CAD workstation. And that finally caught up to me when I was about 26, 27, which I think, I think that's actually a pretty common age. And I kind of see it in the conversations I'll be a part of at whether like through Reddit or even like in-person meetups where there's that sense of invincibility. Uh, and then the, the body kind of the, uh, catches up, like all the sins catch up to you uh, around, it seems like late twenties. And so for me, that was when my, my neck and my the carpal tunnel sy- symptoms really started acting up. And I was seeing a hand therapist who said, Hey, like, it's pretty simple. You have to stop hunching at your laptop. And at the time I've been working for Odesk, which is now called Upwork. Um, and they, uh, we, we eat our own dog food at Odesk. So we would work remote a couple days a week on our company issued MacBook airs. And that, that put me out of commission in like a month and a half, two months. And so, um, now with the hand doctor telling me I can't hunch a laptop, I started looking for portable laptop 
like risers or some, some way to get my laptop up to screen level because the, uh, the, often the cause of they're called repetitive stress injuries and uh, carpal tunnel is one of them. Um, the, often the cause is actually in your neck. And if you think of your nerves as like a garden hose, if you're pinching the garden hose right near the, the spigot, so like right, right where it's coming out of your brain, right in your, your vert, like your C4, C5 vertebrae, if you're pinching the garden hose right there, it just causes havoc downstream. And so um, that's why bad posture can really catch up with you. And so uh, concert pianists, you see them with perfect posture because they know that um, all the, the heavy load that their hands are doing needs to be fully um, supported by uh, good posture all the way up to their head. So, um, so then it became pretty clear I needed to get something that got my screen up to eye level. And if you're familiar with how laptops work, the screen is attached to the keyboard and you can't like separate those two. Well, um, you know, our, our hands aren't coming out of like the sides of our head. Our hands come out from our elbows, which are way down our body. So you have to split that paradigm up. And so I, I got comfortable with the idea of using an external keyboard and mouse and then raising the laptop screen up. And, um, I was like, why isn't anyone doing this? And so I, uh, in this weekend times, I at tech shop, I was playing with some ideas, uh, putting my mechanical engineering background to use, and started playing with mechanisms and laser cutters, and came up with a pretty trick um, folding laptop stand. That um, once I had it, I, you know, you're asking about validation. Um, people uh, would see me using it at tech shop, like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And so I'd have them try it and someone would pinch their fingers here, or, you know, break this or that. So I, I had like a really quick feedback cycle with a bunch of tinkerers, which was pretty cool. Um, Especially the, I was going to say, I, I could watch that gif of the fold unfold for hours. I mean, it just, it's like a perfect ASMR video. You could just have someone <laughs> quietly talking in the background, but I just right. know like, there's a lot of pinched fingers that involved the development of that design right <laughs> yeah well unfortunately like some are you know are still getting pinched uh yeah so we're um you know talk about this later but the the whole like the whole idea of uh, the, this meat suit we're in what's it capable of grabbing and moving and articulating in a kind of an intuitive way it's a pretty hard pretty hard thing to to solve around um so that's what we're we're always trying to make it even more useful i guess or less more user friendly um so the, uh, but that that, that evolution okay. thing is neat like so you i love the idea that it's you just you've got the you've got the thing you got to solve and we all know everybody that's listening is saying like hey i solved this problem i got three eight and a half by eleven you know paper bundles holding my monitor up i get like we know we all did the same goofy thing or some right. cardboard box right no, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, um, yeah, I, I think that's like, a, you know, for something to make it onto your, into your bag or to make it on your desktop or for an app to make it to like the, the first page on your app screen, you know, it, it has to be like so useful and friction free that, the criteria is, I think it's really simple. It's like you actually have to use it. And that was always the bar of, okay, does, does this thing have wings? Is, is it so useful that you, it's not a, a pain in the ass to use? And so, um, and, and I, I think that's a lot harder to hit than, um, than I think our, our brains give it credit for because we're, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost an unconscious thing that you're, you're trying to battle on that, on that level. So, um, once, once, once it got close enough where I was like, okay, I'm actually using this. Then, then I started getting serious about, um, uh, pricing out some parts and uh, where, you know, what suppliers can I use and how long is it going to take to make them? Where can I make them? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Now, th this is the interesting thing of, because of your background, you know, did you, did you like collaborate with other people? You were, you were in this sort of makerspace opportunity with tech, mm -hmm. but like, did you, when did you think 
like, okay, this is a thing I need to think of to be able to repeatedly create this thing and, and part it out. Did you go to other other folks that had founded similar like products or companies? Did or did you like that's always the weird thing is, you know, even the greatest yeah. idea to take it to a market, that's a very different thing because you're you're creating a business, not just a product at that point, right? Right. And uh, I mean, I, I think we're still like, you know, you have to squint to tell for a product or a business um, at this point. And which is another question too. I, I don't think that are you a business or product um, with, you know, with Amazon and the methods of distribution these days, I think you can, you can actually squeak by as being just a product um, or a series of products and not a business. I think that's kind of a, that's kind of a shift happening in the background too. Um, um, but yeah, the, the collaboration side, uh, I wish I had like a, a, a well laid out like rationale for how I came to that decision. But um, I, actually there was one point uh, where I had a prototype and I was at a, some startup event and Eric Mikowski from Pebble was, doing the well he's one of the one of the panelists and he's a tall guy and i and he had spent time at tech shop i think as well or something similar when he was working on the early prototypes of pebble and so i, I sought him out afterwards it's like i got to show you this laptop stand and, and the first thing he said is like you got to put this thing on kickstarter nice. oh, when, when the guy who's yeah it was like the, the guy who's raised the largest kickstarters ever that tells you you should put this on Kickstarter. That, that, that was the validation I think that I, I was looking for. Um, and uh, honestly, I, I, it was kind of like get that done and then figure out the rest, you know, build the plane uh, on the runway as you're on the, where, whatever that phrase is, where you're. Yeah, build, build the plane, plane in air. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. So this is the, and there, that's a, like, talk about a great example, you know, like RIP Pebble, you know, that's a, that in itself was even a, a oh my gosh, yeah. we could, we could spend an hour just on that challenge itself. I'd actually love to have Eric on. It's because of that, even a, a profoundly widely enjoyed and, and well-funded product developed yeah. competition. <laughs> the problem with being really good is that someone else goes, Hey, I'm going to take that space. <laughs> I'm going to start starting yep, like, in the competitive arena. Yep. No, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's like, yeah, you got you to gotta know what fight you're um, wandering into. And, uh, uh, you know, big retailers, shelf space. Um, uh, I've got my own theories on how profitable retail is, but I'm guessing if it wasn't as profitable as it needed to be, or at least their competition, made it so unprofitable for them that it just, just squeezed the, squeezed the life out of it. So there's probably, that, I don't know any we see that's one of the more, that's one of the more popular things. Why, if you look at shark tank and, and stuff like that, like inevitably their entry to take 51% of your equity is always, Hey, I can get you into big, big box retail. And that's the only, like no one will get you there. And, I kind of got to believe that there's truth to that, that it's difficult to enter that market. And it's also uh, probably not something you want to do with for the first time, uh, else you'll be on the yeah. side of a, of a chapter 11. <laughs> it's a dangerous game. It's, uh, it's interesting. Again, I've got huge respect, not just that you walked up bloody mountains and skied down them, but that you, you did this as a business and, and you, took a, you took a run at it. Like it's, were there points where you said, okay, everybody's liking this, but who, you know, am, am I ready to, to actually own and, and operate this by itself? And speaks to that where, um, you know, what you're like, is this thing, so we're, we're selling, this is after the first Kickstarter. Um, a great thing about Kickstarter is if you get a boatload of pre-orders, you have this wave of your own excitement and juice to, to ride. And, and you also have like thousands of people waiting on their stuff. So you're, you know, you're, you're very motivated to, um, uh, to deliver and not, not have egg on your face, uh, which, you know, you know hacking those types of, um, 
uh, feedback loops into your product development or business cycle, I think is, you know, if, if you know, crash and burn, uh, you, know, you gotta watch for that. But I think that's a, that, that was a useful thing. Like, I, I don't think I could have ever pushed through shipping the first version if I didn't have so many people waiting on them. Um, you just, you know, you just, it's just a different ball game of, um, of commitment. And, uh, you know, I, I've never raised funds to take an, take an investment. Um, I mean, Kickstarter's pre-order, but never taken like uh, an equity outside investment. And uh, one, I, you know, I, I think of it as like not wanting to give up control, but I do see the upside in that now you've got other people to work for. And as a solo, solopreneur, solo founder, I do think that um, uh, commit, social commitments and commitments, you know, to, the more you're intertwined in the fabric of the people you're supporting, the more willing you're going to be to do whatever it takes and get up and, and, and push through solving these problems that you really don't want to work on. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I think there is value for, for, for being uh, beholden to a lot of folks as well. Um, but the, so yeah, that's kind of answering that part, but one, um, so there, the, maybe the lowest point was after we had shipped. So the first Kickstarter, I think we had 3000 units. We maybe made 5,000 total to have some inventory. And then I think over the next year I shipped another 3000 total. So maybe we had like shipped 8,000, um, to that point. And I was, definitely not making money. I mean, I probably, I wasn't following it too close, but I hadn't paid myself in probably a year and a half. Maybe I had, but it was, I think I was right at minimum wage. And, um, and there's an inflection. There's a point where it's like, well, is this a hobby or do I need to make this into a real business? And the, the next step was to not manufacture it myself and, and use a traditional mass manufacturing process. So that's injection molding is what we use. And up to that point, I had been manually running a laser cutter and we were manually like riveting these parts together. And it was extreme, extremely expensive, um, not profitable, but it, and it sucked. But that's because you probably acquired a couple of repetitive stress injuries in that process as well. <laughs> Hopefully, oh, you get a 100%. Good, yeah. Your therapist on retainer. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You solved this problem and created another one. Um, and the, uh, the, uh, the decision was, uh, and actually, I'm kind of advising a friend right now that's in a similar spot with a, a product company. And, um, you know, having a product that's shipping, but it's really not profitable, what do you do? And I was, I made the decision to stop selling the current product and only taking names for the new launch. So it's like, hey, new version's coming, please leave your email. And I, in my mind that I wasn't losing any money because I, I wasn't making any money anyways, selling the current product. So there wasn't like a, a, a lost opportunity there um, and not having to run a manufacturing business freed up all my brain space to work on the new one. And um, that was the, that was the, the, the point I think where I was like, okay, it's time to make this into a, a, a like a legit operation and, and involve other professional organizations such as the manufacturer that um, are, are, are bigger than just me running this thing. So, um, the, you know, again, I had now two years worth of, or a year and a half worth of, um, of data in terms of what's the conversion rate on the website. Um, the, the, the roost stand is great in that if you read Seth Godin's purple cow, it's a, it is a purple cow. Like people see it and they're like, what is that thing? You know, tell me about that. Cause to use it, people see it. And so the word of mouth, um, the, the word of mouth marketing on it is uh, very, very strong. And in my mind, that's been a safety net for if, if, if I can make a product that people love and want to talk about, then this whole paid acquisition side of marketing, I don't have to be that good at at first because the word of mouth is going to carry the day. And that's proven to be true. 
And, um, and I, I don't know what I would, I would have no idea what I'd do if that was not the case. Cause, um, I, I definitely, um, am not focused on, on that side of the business at all. So, um, yeah, so given that experience, it was like, okay, make the best next gen you can. People, if they love it, they'll talk about it. And let's just go all in on that. And then that was the second Kickstarter, which then launched uh, in 2015. And the beautiful thing about launching to a group of people that already love your product is that you are like way ahead out the gate uh, when you launch the next one. And and that's the model that I see a lot of people using successfully in Kickstarter now is, is continuing to innovate for their customer base. Yeah, and it's <clears throat> the hard part is you you've you still got to do it right the first time. And, you know, a lot of people will listen to this. They're like, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna launch a couple of junkers, and then all all the third ones where I'm gonna oh, right. like, no, no, you have to go all in on every one of them, and yeah. go through the course of hard yards and tough lessons and challenges and growth, you will get the third ones the the, you know, or the break-even point, or whatever the profit point. It's 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 funny. Yep. People, it's not just going out and grinding it out. You know that that just be the number three isn't what matters. It's the three proven difficult things of just doing uncomfortable stuff as an owner. You know, like you said, you're you're paying yourself. You know, you're you can't go to Starbucks because you you get paid less than the person behind the the barista bar, <laughs> and. Yep you're doing it in faith of what you believe you, you can turn into something bigger. And the, I think the most difficult part is when you experience it, no one knows the right moments until they've long passed and you hopefully hit mm-hmm. it. <laughs> like yep. knowing when to shut down is never right. Like everybody gets, you know, most of them get that wrong and we're usually on the wrong side of the ledger by the time we make that decision. And especially yeah. when you look at the startup success rates, uh, you know, I'm lucky in that, I mean, I work for, for a startup that has experienced the right growth and a huge team. I mean, I'm just, just literally, I work for the company. I didn't start the company, but to see the evolution and then watch other companies around me and other products and stuff that, that didn't make it. And then you realize like, oh, wow, when you do make it, you're a, a tenth of a percent of a percent. It's it's actually a, a, a frightening number. No one would no one would do it voluntarily if they saw some of the stats. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that and um, the longer you have success, the the greater the challenge it's going to be to stay successful. Like it, it like it never gets easier in terms of the decisions and growth you're going to have to make. Um, you just get practice at doing hard things, um, you know, just, just to make that a real feel-good story. <laughs> so, um, if you're for yeah, folks that are like fans of like all the motivational stuff, like David Goggins is a classic for a lot of people. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting chap. I don't necessarily subscribe to the like I want to make every day suck and that will make tomorrow better. But it's I oh. love his mentality where someone people ask him all the time like, so when does it get easy? He goes, it doesn't. It's not supposed to. That's by design. If it's never easy, it's not going to. You know, I was a I was a spinning instructor, and I'm a cyclist. And people said like, "Oh, it must be easier for you because you're a cyclist." I'm like, "No, it's still still a hundred percent of my effort, or eighty percent of my effort." That maybe I'm kicking out a few extra percentage watts than you are, but I mean, it still sucks. (laughs) Yeah, so you just you practice that at this point. Yeah. So what when you see so you're you're shipping, you're on products to, you know, what's the what's the team? You know, you're you're this is your thing, but like how do you how do you reach out for stuff around learning, you know, how to handle social media, how to handle websites and conversions? Did like how much of it did you do and and then how much did you farm out or or share with with other folks? Yeah, so I I've I subscribe to this. It's, it's, I think it's worked so far. Kind of hard to, to judge. Um, but if there's some new thing, whether it's, um, uh, say, like uh, on-page conversion or put some, uh, some title on it that some marketing group has determined that's their, you know, that's their thing. Um, 
I, I've, I've tried to get dangerous enough myself so that I can, I can hire or contract and, and, and not be blind to maybe what's really going on. And I, I don't need to, you know, the contractors I've worked with might tell you that that's probably been somewhat of a challenging relationship for them because I might like uh, meddle around too much. Um, you know the right questions to ask, and sometimes they wish they weren't asked those questions. <laughs> another way, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's a better view of it. Um, uh, and I mean, it's. I, I think one, one thing I think that doesn't get mentioned and it's kind of a pet theory of mine, not mine, but uh, it's a pet theory I, I'm running with at the moment that, uh, you know, there, there's all these, the internet business is not that old, you know, it's 15 years, maybe 10 years since it's kind of reached a mass, um, but, you know, a lot of people use the internet now for, for buying things. Um, but it's, it's not that old. And when you talk about models for businesses, there, there, there's all these different models of business. Like there's uh, like fashion, like fast fashion, where, you know, you can make something for three bucks, but they charge it. They have a $50 price tag on a t-shirt and it's there for a few weeks during the release. And then it's just rapidly discounted through this like, like this big web of different retailers as it falls down the price chain until someone tries to like break even with it at the very end at TJ Maxx or something. <laughs> I was going to um, say, I was going to say TJ Maxx. Uh, it's so hilarious. Yeah. You got there first. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know the model. Um, and, and then like, you know, and uh, uh, outlet stores, um, you know, outlet stores are, uh, it, 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 they give you the impression that they're collecting the overruns from, their department stores, but I, I, I bet a lot of that stuff goes straight to the outlet. You know, it's like they're, they're, uh, they've got a model and they've innovated within the model. Um, and that, and that's just for fashion. So, but then like luxury Rolex, um, is another crazy different type of luxury, uh, business model. Um, and, 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 and it seems like people think internet is a model. But, but internet's not a model. Internet's just a, a function of one of these larger models. It's just, it's just a, one of the pieces that makes the larger model work. And, and, and I, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate that. And where I got in trouble is that I was trying to do all the latest, um, all the latest things that were in vogue for uh, funnel optimization or uh, email, you know, uh, drip campaigns. and um, uh, you know, maybe like a, a weekly flash sale or, or whatever it might be. And, you know, looking back on it now, it's, it's kind of obvious, like, like I need to have a type, like what kind of, uh, what kind of brand and business model does, do I want to represent? Um, and how do those individual things fit into it? And some you don't even do, like if, if, if you're a premium retailer, you never, you don't discount, you don't discount. Um, you don't have sales. Whereas like if you're gap, you know, everything's on sale all the time. And so they're, they're, they're clearly like shop, like directing at a, their, um, their marketing towards a certain kind of condition consumer. Um, and uh, being very strategic on, on, on how we use all those different kind of tactics is, um, is where it, it's funny. It's like the agencies you hire, to do those certain things, they won't tell you about what piece they play in in all of this. Um, and so that that took my own kind of reading and trying to read the tea leaves of what you know what is really going on here. Um, after chasing my tail with some different types of marketing campaigns for a while, um, yeah, and it's a it's a lesson in behavioral economics as well. I, I always tell people they're like, how do you how do you learn how to like create good products? I said, read Kahneman and Tversky first, you know, understand how someone's going to receive the thought of your product. Then mm. 
work backwards on, you know, how do I present that in a way that will work with, you know, using the principles of scarcity and, and, and prospect theory mm, and all this cool. other stuff. Like you don't necessarily want to, you don't want to lead with like, I'm going to do a thing that will do these things. You're like, no, no, but I've, I've got the idea. Now let's hold on for a second. How will this work? You know, like you said, go up and physically show somebody like, hey, this is really cool. Boom. Okay. Now, you know, then you, you know, you've got that first, you know, the first wave of they like it, they can physically touch it. There's a way I can experience it. Now let's make that repeatable and, and stuff like that. And then, like you said, you get into SEO and, and, and campaigns and, and all this stuff. And I like that you brought up the, um, you know, the way the retailers do their, their outlet stores. And I'm old enough that I grew up when outlet stores were literally like scratch and dent. It was like a misstitch. It was stuff that was first yeah. run original stuff that was sent. And it was really difficult to find because you, you didn't get to choose sizes. It was literally overruns, end runs, mistakes that you would buy. They'd be high quality, but they were sold at cheaper prices because they couldn't sell them in the main store. But then along the way through the mid to late 80s, they discovered oh, wait, people love these outlets. Why don't we make lower quality clothing and just send it straight to the outlets and, and being able to reduce the price? So it was already, it was presented like an 80% discount, but it was in fact only yeah. 20% discount because the margins were so much different uh, because they'd lowered the quality of manufacturing. So now you're actually, you're buying outlets. You're not buying original quality at outlet price. It was It's kind of bizarre how, the market figured it out and like the house always wins kids <laughs> somewhere yeah. out there. Yeah. No, but yeah, I guess, yeah, it's that open, openly known. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, what was the name of the, uh, that the book you had mentioned, the, oh, the, yes. the author? Thinking fast and slow is probably one of the oh, best ones. Okay. Yep. And, um, and I've, I've, I'm a weird student of, 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 uh, like behavioral economics and behavioral, behavioral psychology. And that's how I got, I got into technology because people are like, how do you make technology, you know, work? I said, easy. You, you figure out how people use it and then you work backwards and, and that's how it, it makes it easier. And I've seen, and, and you see it kind of play out and it's exciting to watch, you know, folks like yourself, James, who've like done it you took a leap of faith you did this thing and 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 i'm i'm excited by you know i i want that third kickstarter to take you up and over the top like i want to see a team of people you know who are under your wing because you've you've really found a lot of stuff that it's great lessons that people should learn i mean and generally you know we one of the productivity things that i love exposing you know introducing to people is just like think about making something matter to somebody else as much as you believe it matters to you. And you mm, know, like you your, your business, like involving other people, involving a team. That's why quite often like founders are teams because people will believe in the ability of them to play off each other. And, and being a solo entrepreneur is really, really difficult because you've got to find faith in somebody else's abilities and, and, and share this, this stuff and it's that in itself is is the challenge of no one else will love and care for the thing that you've got as much as you do and when you do find somebody who kind of has that can share that belief they become a disciple and then they become a partner <laughs> and that's those are the people that you learn to latch on to i call it my startup bus i look around the people that i've yeah, with right. over the years and said if I had a bus, yep. and that's as many seats as I had, and I had to create a startup, who would be on that bus? And I got a lot of great friends uh, that wouldn't be on that bus, and it's it's a tough decision to make. Yeah, no, that, that's true. And uh, to add a little color. Um, one of the uh, early partners of mine was uh, the group who were, still does run my social media. They uh, shared a, or we shared a, uh, a, a, not a co-working space, but a big warehouse space. We were neighbors, and uh, that was for the first two Kickstarters. And uh, they, they they felt like a partner from the beginning. I mean, it's, it's been a service contract, but it was always a, you know, any time to darken their door and 
brainstorm ideas uh, by text message at you know 1 a.m. kind of thing. And um, you know, when you're not, my my thing is like the the business wasn't profitable for quite a while, so it was really hard to to sell anyone else on on wanting to join something like that. Um, and you know, going forward, where you know, I think there there are more opportunities to to bring in you know to bring in folks and have them hop on the bus. Um, but you know, it'd be, it'd be doing it where hopefully I'm not driving the bus off a cliff at this point. Is kind of where I'm, I'm feeling like <laughs> it'd be going. So, um, but uh, but one thing uh, Ryan, who I've been working with for so long, shared is that you know when you're when you're first starting out, you and you're you're working with um, uh, other, you know, for, in my case, I work with a lot of folks on the manufacturing part, the manufacturing partners, um, and we rely on them completely. And the, you, you, when you're first starting out, you don't have a choice of who you work with. And that often leads to situations where you're, you're not, you know, you, you don't really know what um, negotiating power and what position you're in. And you're often a, a flag kind of flapping in the breeze and um as you start to gain some success and can then use that success to, to work with people that um, you want to work with that changes the dynamic uh, and 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 changes the or changes just like the the, the the felt experience of working with other people um when you're when you're working with people you don't want to work with it's not fun and, and I, but I think there is a lot of not fun stuff at the beginning. And the idea, though, is that as as you do find success, you can then um, you can then start to uh, pick and choose who you work with and have a lot more fun in the process too. Yeah, it's the there. There's going to be uncomfortable moments, and and there's a benefit on the other side of it. Some of them are just continuously uncomfortable, you know, and, and yeah. Try and outsource some of that stuff. So uh, now, I, before we wrap up, I really wanted to dig in because we we talked at the start uh, before we before we hit record, and and these are the moments I always love to to explore deeper. You talked about single page productivity, uh, and as a yeah. somebody who's only using a laptop, and I'm a big fan of like close it all out and and just hone in on on one thing talk about this and, and, and what the, what is the movement? What's the idea and, and what's your belief in this? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it has a title, maybe it does, but like single, single screen or something. Uh, I'm sure there, I'm sure there is a name for it, but, um, yeah, sorry. I just realized I'm like, we were talking web apps. So I think I said single page, but like, I'm stuck on a single page app phone. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, cell phones. It's, well, cell phones have managed to only have one screen, but still, we are, you know, extremely hard to focus for a long period of time on a cell phone. Um, maybe that has something to do with it being in our hands and so small versus like a, a screen in front of you. Um, um, but the, the, you know, kind of the, the far extreme, and the devices exist now where it's a. Uh, uh, it's a single, it's a giant e-reader. Um, and every, you know, there's, you can't click into a web browser. You can't, um, you can't do anything that doesn't involve directly, like using your pen and writing on a piece of paper like you would in an analog world. Um, and adapting your workflow to, uh, to that, paradigm um like remarkable is the name of this one tablet and they they kickstarted like a year and a half ago i i i don't think that they've quite cracked the code on a on the workflow piece like it's still kind of clunky um but the like, like like whenever you have to interact with the work you're on getting it as close to a analog um uh, equivalent like a pen and paper where there there's something about 
um, I guess this, this is a little bit different than one page, but just kind of a, of a quick aside, but something where you're actually, your hand is connected to the work you're doing. And so you get a full like motor feedback cycle um, that is more than just your fingers typing and then your brain trying to like figure out which characters you type, but it's actually your arm is creating the um, uh, continuous stream of input. Um, there's definitely uh, there's psychology behind it as well. Like that's why I'm a I'm a fan. Of, I, they call it morning pages. So every morning I I physically write out uh, my goals for the day. Some you know my what I'm feeling, and then at the end of the day I bust out that book and say, okay, how did the day go? It's just like five minutes. It oh, good. Yep. Long, yep. But the physical act of writing it is fundamentally different in how I act on those those things down the road because it's like you said you're you're not just hacking out the words like i can type at an incredible rate but when i slow down to write it out it actually it kind of gets you to really tune into specifically like what am i writing what and it's it's a very different thing if you actually did you know an mri on somebody and and, and checked a, a step right. while they're doing this stuff it's remarkably different physiological responses when you, when you actually write stuff out. Yeah. I, I think it's because you're, you're, I, I, you know, one theory is that your, your eyes are, and you're constantly monitoring the characters that are typing up and you're looking for corrections because there's a, you can, there's an error factor when you're typing and then you, you stop your train of thought and you go correct the letters. Um, but when you, when you're handwriting, there's no, and yeah, you might like, have some jumbled letters or whatnot, but there isn't that same editing uh, program running when you're handwriting. Seems like that that gets involved there somehow. But yeah, but it'd be really interesting to see the if someone studied those differences on a like on a neurological level. But I definitely like this idea um, of like you know single screen in that using one thing and and like the the physicality of it is one thing. Even just like I think of day to day like removing distraction focusing in on a on one activity one thing it's i'm a big fan of of cal newport's uh work and and uh so yep. deep work is a phenomenal book i've i've bought digital minim minimalism have not yet read it uh, okay yeah haven't found time <laughs> because i'm probably surfing the web or doing whatever but uh, it, it's uh there's a lot of a lot of research behind this stuff and you know and so you end up in this weird dichotomy. You know how this stuff has got to work. You know how you can make it work and like the physiology behind it. You know how like you've seen successful products and, and software that have achieved some of this stuff. And at the same time, hey, I got to run a business. You know, before we close out, talk about that. Like what's the, what is the dichotomy of being a, an entrepreneur, knowing your boundaries, but yet having to continuously push them? Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, yeah. How do you, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. Um, and and I and I say that from like the, uh, uh, you know, kind of from like that funny uh, perspective of like an ego that's trying to move beyond what it it thinks it's qualified or wants things to be good, right or wrong about. Um, I think like some, some awareness of what, like, you know, how does your wet, like wet hardware work um, through, uh, through life. I've sort of come to understand that I look at the world as, um, you know, what's wrong with this thing or not what's wrong, but like, um, how do you, uh, like, how do you fix this thing? What, what's, what's the thing broken? And, and that, I, I think we all have some base default pattern of looking at the world. Um, and, and mine is, mine happens to be in kind of that engineers, you know, how do I fix this thing or something ain't right. Um, and if you have a little bit of insight and awareness into how that is coloring how you look at problems, then I think you stand a bit better chance of catching that pattern and maybe just getting that needle to skip a little bit a couple times to then uh, jump out of 
whatever um, problem solving pattern I'd been in before. Um, but a lot of times patience and knowing that how I'm thinking about it now is going to change and that sometimes the best thing is just a couple days away on a weekend, not thinking at all about the problems. Um, and, and, tr and trying to, when, if I can have that thought, like trying to hold on to that thought, because um, I, I think the thinker we all have in our own heads, like, you know, if you hammer on that thing all the time and everything's a problem to solve and you're always thinking, then, then that pattern gets deeper and deeper ingrained into how you look at everything. And so being able to um, step back from that and allow other ways of uh, problem solving and, and looking at the world to come in is, is always good. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, and that's, that, that's about all I got though. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say, uh, I don't have any more um, uh, sage, sage things on that. I think I that enough though, is if anybody sure. just took that few minutes of advice and, and put it into play, you know, once a week, it, it is, it is meaningful. So James, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. I, I could definitely, we'll catch up again. Uh, I want to hear about the next, I know there's something coming and I know it's going to be big. Yeah. So <laughs> I want to be a part of that launch, you know, definitely let's keep in touch. We'll share stories. Uh, how do folks get a hold of you if they, if they want to follow along and, and hear about what your, what your latest activities are. Yeah. No, uh, thank you for having me on and would love to, keep you in the loop and we, we do have some stuff coming. Uh, don't know when though. Um, but the, uh, the, the website, the uh, rooststand.com, uh, if you send an email to us there or contact us, it goes right to me. So, um, that, that's the best way. And we're also on Twitter and, uh, and, and Facebook. So find us on any of those platforms. Well, when you're not uh, walking up mountains, skiing down them, creating successful no. Kickstarters, uh, you know, yeah, take that time slow down it's been a pleasure james thanks very much for taking the time with us today and folks of course yeah then definitely reach out uh follow along to what what james is doing this has been super good advice uh and uh look forward to chatting in the future cool no thank you so much eric it's been great chatting you're listening to today's cool Palsy podcast